0: And it's a series we want to continue for a few more weeks called Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life. And what we have been doing is taking in a classic story of the Bible and using it as a backdrop for some really practical teaching for our lives as Christians. And so we're going to do that again today. Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life. If you've been with us on this journey, this would be lesson number five. We've talked about being delivered. We've talked about being provided for. We've talked about being nourished. We've talked about being protected, and last last week we talked about being protected. This week we want to talk about being equipped. Equipped is our lesson today, and as you can see from the screen, perhaps you know the classic story that we're going to refer to at the end of our lesson Uh, that is familiar to many of you. But we're going to spend most of our time today in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. We're only going to look at two verses today, and I know what you're thinking. Oh, we're going to be out of here real soon. (laughs) Most of you know better than that. If you have your Bibles, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles on the bookshelf for your benefit. You can take one of those Bibles. You can use it here. You can take it home and keep it, if that would be a benefit to you. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17, pretty famous verses. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Before we get there, do you have any tools that really benefit you? Think about it. Any tools? That you use on a regular basis because they're so beneficial to what you do as a job or as hobby, something like that. Well, I'm a pastor. Most of you know that. And I'm going to share with you 10 tools that I rely upon as a pastor, 10 best tools for a pastor. These are tools either that I have or that I wish that I had. Okay. Number one tool. And these are jokes, people. Okay. I don't want any tomatoes thrown in my direction. Best tools for a pastor. Number one, a trap door in my office. <laughs> when the meeting's not going just right you know how great it would be to hit a little button and go bye-bye I, it's a joke okay it's a joke i wouldn't actually do that to you people the thought has crossed my mind but i would never actually do that best tools for a pastor number two and this might sound a little odd but i want a switchblade bible that's right i want a bible that pops up just like a switchblade and and I could use it as fast as I need to. And obviously you should say, well, you should have all my Bible memorized, Pastor. That's your switchblade. But I think having the Bible at such access to whip it up and go, you know what Hebrews says about that? A switchblade Bible. How about number three, a laugh track? Yeah. And an amen track. You guys remember the laugh tracks from the old sitcoms where there was no congregation? There was just yeah. a button. And when something was funny, they hit that button. Well, I want that for me. I want someone to come up with that in the tech team. A laugh track and an amen track. So don't overuse it. We don't want too many amens, but the occasional amen would be good. Number four, best tool for a pastor is broken clocks in the sanctuary. That's right. So you look back and go, wow, he's only been preaching for no minutes. And uh, that would always be helpful to a pastor. Here's number five. Again, this is going to sound a little weird, but I want a mood pulpit. You ever heard of a mood ring? I want that for my pulpit. Now, you guys know I'm not a shouter. I don't scream. I don't yell. But sometimes I want my spirit represented. And I think by inventing a mood pulpit and it changes colors based on the mood or based on what I'm bringing from the scripture, you would really know where I'm coming from. I think that would bless a pastor. How about this one? (laughs) Jokes. Number six, a boxing ring for those church members that can't get along. (laughs) Put on the gloves, have them duke it out for three minutes. We come up with a winner. Just a joke. How, how about number seven? This could be entertaining. A baptism tank with a diving board. <laughs> for dramatic effect. Yes. <clears throat> would anyone do that? Yes. Cannonball. Yeah. How about number eight? Again, these are jokes, but this would be interesting. Chairs that give you a small electrical shock when you not asleep during the sermon. <laughs> if you not asleep during the sermon. Just a little bit. A little bit to zappy awake. Boy, for some pastors, that would be really crazy, right? People would be shaking everywhere. Uh, how about this one, number nine? Ministry spackle to fill all the holes. Boom. Get that ministry spackle to fill all the holes. Just a joke. And number 10, I think my favorite of all, an administrative assistant that doubles as a bodyguard. Esther Lee, raise your hand. I have that tool. You don't want to mess with Esteli. Esteli will take you down because she's protecting me, so thank you. Ten tools for a pastor. We're going to talk about tools today. Obviously, the greatest tool any pastor can have is the Word of God, and that's where we're headed today. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Follow me there, and we're just going to read two verses today and talk about them. Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, towards the end of his life. And he says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen? Our three-point outline, if you grab the notes today, is number one, the foundation of God's power. Number two, the practicality of God's power. And number three, the result of God's power. That's where we're headed today. Let's talk about the foundation of God's power. Now, where does power come from? Think about that. Where does power come from? Everyone wants to be powerful. I believe that. Everyone wants to have power. Power is a very attractive thing to have. You guys ever heard of a selfie? <laughs> not yours. <laughs> <laughs> who said not yours <laughs> Ellie no thankfully Joel Joel was able to send me one of his where is Joel today by the way working out Working. It. that's right he probably is he probably is we all want to feel powerful don't we we all like to feel powerful in fact there's a famous story from the Old Testament you guys remember the story of Samson remember the story of Samson yeah that's a funny picture you can laugh at that picture that's supposed to be funny Samson, when I read Samson as a little boy, you know who I'm picturing when I read Samson? I'm picturing someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Someone huge, someone muscular, someone so big you don't want to mess with him. But as you read the story of Samson, there's a part of this where a lot of people are confused about Samson. Samson is so strong, supernaturally strong, and no one can understand why. And as I reread that story the one day, I started to change my perspective of what Samson may have looked like. Now, he may not have looked like the guy in the right exactly, but he may have looked like an average guy. He may have looked like me. He may have looked like somebody completely average, and then he had supernatural strength. And the question for Samson is, Samson, why are you so strong? Where does your power come from? They were all confused, and they had to find out where, where Samson's power came from. Sometimes it's confusing where power comes from. Sometimes it's very obvious where power comes from, isn't it? Sometimes it's so obvious where the power comes from is we want to take that power, and we want to harness it, and we want to utilize it for energy for the benefit of our homes. And the sun is one of those things where you look at the sun and go, of course, we know where the heat comes from. We know where the power comes from. The sun is so big, so blazing, so hot, so powerful that we wanna harness that power because that power can be beneficial for our lives. Well, here's a question today is, why do we study the Bible? Apparently this is a question because I, I Googled this question and this gotquestions.org thing came up as if to say someone has asked this question before, why? David, why do we do this? Why do we base our church upon the scriptures? I mean, if our goal was just to fill the seats here, we could do it a lot of different ways, couldn't we? We could simply do it based on entertainment alone. We could have the best music, which I think we do. But we could just make this a very entertaining experience for you and base our church based on what people want, what people desire. But instead, at least Crossroads Church, we base it upon the scriptures. Why? God's power. To harness God's power. Someone's paying attention. That's exactly right, Heather. We are talking about the power of God today. We're going to talk about how important that power is for our life and for our church. And as you notice, Paul says to his protege, Timothy, he says this phrase All scripture, all of it, every nuance, every jot and tittle is breathed out by God. Now, I know you've thought of that before. You probably have heard this passage. at least read, maybe even preached on before, and you've heard this before, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Breathed out from God. But how often do we consider that? I don't think we consider it as often as we should. In fact, I know that we don't, because all we would be doing is reading this. If we really thought about that all the time, we would be in the Scripture as much as we possibly could instead of the other way around, trying to fit it into the nooks and crannies of our life. All scriptures breathed out by God. Now, I'm a sports fan. Um, this happened a few years ago. LeBron James played a game against the Boston Celtics, and he hit some milestones, some points or something like that, and, and there was a fan in the stands that he took his shoes off and gave his shoes to the fan. And at first I thought, cool, and part of me thought, gross. Because uh, he just wore those for at least three hours, and sweaty feet were in those. But this fan was, was overcome with joy because LeBron James had just given him his shoes. And those shoes, again, were, were worn by LeBron James, played with LeBron James, and were probably very valuable pieces to collect. And it's interesting how small something can be so significant to someone's life because of who it's connected to. Something as simple as a pair of shoes can change someone's world simply by getting them. Maybe you guys have seen this painting before, and there's a a bigger version of this, but it's sort of a picture of David and God. David's hand over here, and God's over here. See, David was a man after God's own heart, and it was almost as if they were so connected. That David and God were so closely connected to each other that it's almost as if they were touching. It's almost as if they were holding hands. And that's, that's a cool picture. It's something to reflect upon. That's so Well, you look at David's life, it looked a lot like the power of God was upon David's life at every point in his life. And it was. And there's no disputing that. But where did that power come from? Was David strong? You couldn't make that argument. But I think more than anything, he was more connected to the power of God. He had the power of God, he had access to it, and he utilized that power during the course of his life and ministry. When the law was being handed out in the Old Testament to Moses, if you remember this account, there's two different laws that God gave to the people of Israel. He gave the law of Moses. The Mosaic law, the, the, the um, Old Testament ceremonial law, the law of the land. He gave that to Moses. He told Moses to write it down. Moses wrote it down. He gave it to the people. He read it before the people. And that was the law of God for the land. But then Mount Moses went up to Mount Sinai. And he got two tablets, if you remember that. Two tablets of stone, as we would know as the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting is these commandments were given differently than the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses, Moses transcribed with his own, with his own hand, as, as God gave it to him. But the Ten Commandments, notice what it says. The stone tablets inscribed with the finger of God, separating it from the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses was good. And good for a time. And God gave it and it was necessary for them to pay attention to. And not, God gave the people the Ten Commandments. And he did so by writing it with his own finger. Separating it so far from the, from the law of Moses. As if to say the law of Moses will come and will pass. The law of God will never, will never pass. It, it is eternal. It is permanent. And they took those tablets, the second ones, because the first ones broke. And they put them inside the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the permanency, the eternal nature of those commandments because God wrote them with his own finger. Now, do you think if God writes something with his own finger, that's something we should pay attention to? I would say yes. I mean, if God was going to write a message in the sky for all of us and told us the exact date of when that was going to happen, do you think we'd look in the sky? Do you think we'd stop our lives, go out of our homes, go out of our offices and look up and go, God, what do you want to say to us? And he's going to write it with his own finger. That would be very, very important. Well, he did. He did. He did that with the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments are exactly what God wants the world to know about his nature and about the holy law. But we've just learned that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. And that's convicting, isn't it? That's convicting because we don't treat the Scripture like we should if we really believed that. That all Scripture is breathed out by God. And you're not the only one. You're not the only one. I've, I've had many periods in my life, especially growing up, where I had the Word of God. I had the power accessible to me, and I disregarded it. I acted like it was nothing at all. I acted like it was a nuisance, like a chore, like something that I, I didn't want to read, but I should read, and I felt guilty to read, instead of going, wait a minute, this is the bread of God This is written by the finger of God. This is exactly what God wants me to know and this is the very power that he's made accessible to my life. And that's convicting, isn't it? Because if we really believed that this was the word of God, we wouldn't stray far from it at all. We would stay as close as we possibly could because that power will change our lives. And it has changed our lives, hasn't it? And you're alive today, it's because of the word of God. Because that word is powerful. So it's God breathe. It's God breathe. I wish someone had reminded me of that in my mid 20s, saying, Todd, you're neglecting the word of God. Have you considered that it's God breathed? Have you considered that it was given to you by the Almighty God? Think about that. The Almighty God gave us His word so that we would have His power. Now, I decided to Google some of the most powerful things in the world the other day, and uh, the most powerful weapon is some kind of explosive nuclear device. Of course, you would expect that. Some of the most po- popular men and the most powerful men in the world are right there. I don't know if they're popular. That was a little slip of the tongue there. They might not be popular, but they are some of the most powerful men in the world right there in your middle screen. And then, for fun, I just say I just say, what's the most powerful breath? And of course, it's the onion breath. Don't go go near on your breath. It's going to destroy your world. Uh, But power is attractive, right? Power is something we want access to. It's something we want available to us. Maybe we'll say it this way. It's something we want on our team, isn't it? I mean, we want to have the most powerful weapons. We want the most powerful people on our team. We want to know that if the chips fall, we have the power on our side. And I really believe that's true. Because you could see it all over the world. But what about spiritual power? What about God's power? It says in Jeremiah 32, the prophet says this, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and earth by your strong hand and your powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, no matter what you measure to use power, anything you put God next to, God is going to dominate that thing. I don't care if it's a person or a weapon or a tool or onions. God is more powerful and the two aren't even comparable because God spoke the world into existence. God's very words brought everything good here upon the earth, the the solar system, the world, the sun, the stars, the moon, everything that we have, the sea, the land, the animals, our own bodies came about because of God's strong hand and powerful arm. And the prophet reminds the people that nothing is too hard for God. He is the most powerful being, bar none. And that's an amazing reminder to have. It's also a very big reminder for us today to recognize where are we on that spectrum of tapping into that power. Do we do it occasionally? Do we let the pastor do it for us on Sunday to let us preach the word and then we're like, "Ah, oh, we're good for the week. We can come back next week can let him do it again. Or, or are we recognizing, no, 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 no. If he's the almighty God, And he's opened that door for me by the Lord Jesus Christ for me to have access to him and access to his power. I'm going to stay as tethered as I can to that power. I'm going to stay disciplined to know it, to read it, to memorize it, to talk about it. I'm going to stay as close as I can to that power so that when life comes at me, I have God's power to handle it with. And you would think for a minister, that's something ministers should do at every possible time in their life. But sadly, we don't either. Sometimes we get distracted. We get on autopilot cruise control, and we start to do things on our own strength, forgetting where the power lies. The power lies with God. And the power lies with God's word. And it might sound elementary, it might sound like a Sunday school answer. In fact, when I was little, that's my answer to every Sunday school question. I would either answer the Bible or Jesus, when the teacher would ask me a question. And I've seen my children do that as well when I ask them questions. It's either the Bible or Jesus. But think about how brilliant that is. Because they're right. The answer is either the Bible or Jesus for almost every answer that you can come up with. If God is really almighty and he's made his access of that power available to us, should we utilize it? If that is the source of God's power. Paul thought so. Paul was in a dungeon when he wrote this. He's in a dungeon because he would not stop preaching the gospel. They throw him into jail, they drag him across the streets, they beat him, and they throw him in a dungeon to die, hoping that he would die. No food, no clothing, no bathrooms, hardly any visits, and Paul's in a dungeon, rotting, many times forgotten about. And he writes to the church in Philippi to encourage them. He writes the letter of Philippians, and he says in verse 13 of chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, sadly, the world takes that and they they use it for all kinds of things like success and in their own glory and their own advancement. But Paul was doing it for the gospel. And he needed the power of God. And he had the power of God. So he leaned upon the power of God. And Paul did things that we read now going, how did he do that? How did Paul do that? I look at Paul's life and I'm just exhausted reading it. Let alone trying to think of myself living his life. But Paul says, I didn't do it on my own strength. Certainly not. You know that, right? You know that I did not do that on my own strength. It was God's power entering into my life, into my soul, so so that I could accomplish his will. And if you ask Paul today, Paul, how did you do it? He would give you the same answer he gave the Philippi. I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the word of God and he says this about the word of God and this is another really powerful thing to know and to remember He says, for the word of God is living and active. I'm going to say that again. The word of God is living and active. One more time. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, we have a lot of books in my life. I have a lot of books in my office, a lot of books at home on our bookshelf. None of them are alive, okay? None of my kids have ever brought and said, Dad, that book is moving. Uh, If so, I would think there's some kind of creature behind it. Um, But there is one book that's alive, isn't there? There is one book that's, that's power within those pages is real, alive, and active. And that's the word of God. And it's only the word of God. And the writer of Hebrews says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can do things other books cannot do. You can be inspired and motivated. You can get ideas and ideals from books. But what you can't get is the power to change your life from the inside, from the depths of your soul where the most sinful and private parts of you are that nobody sees the sharp two-edged sword can pierce through all of that and can expose what's really there, not to shame you, but to help you, to cleanse you, to heal you, to strengthen you, to pick you up and put you on your way so that you can love the God who created you. And it's all to the word of God. And that's an amazing thing to remember, isn't it? That it's alive and it's active. If the word of God is alive and active, do you think we should use it? Do you think we should go one day without using it? If you take God's power, God's powerful word, the word of God that is active and alive, that sharp two-edged sword, and you put it in our hands, what are we capable of? And you probably write back to Paul. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I have power that is from the Almighty God and I have the sharp two-edged sword and I have the word of God that is alive and active. Nothing is impossible for me with his power. I hope you believe that already. I hope you're wielding that sword as often as you can against the enemy. We've talked about the foundation of God's power. Now let's now talk about the practicality of God's power because God's word is practical. It's not just to know and to store away. It's also to use. Um, Now, You may have heard this from me before, but growing up I liked a show called MacGyver. Anyone? Yep, yeah, I see ya. MacGyver was a great show. MacGyver was, I don't know, it was just entertaining. He got into himself into a lot of jams and had to get himself out of those jams. And MacGyver was anti-gun, he didn't like guns. And so he used this thing called a Swiss Army knife. And I loved the Swiss Army knife when I was a little kid. I wanted the Swiss Army knife because the Swiss Army knife had so many different things and I saw MacGyver use it and get himself out of hairy situations time and time again. And I was saying this once to my old church back in Pennsylvania and someone got me a Swiss army knife. I have that Swiss army knife now and I just want to use that as a warning against you <laughs> that uh, if things don't go well I can uh, leather punch your arm, I can corkscrew your finger. You don't want to mess with someone who has a Swiss army knife, okay? And The great thing about the Swiss Army knife is it seemed to have every tool that you needed to get out of a jam or to help yourself in some situation. Well, Swiss Army knives are kind of old. They're kind of from the 80s and the 90s. I don't know if I see a lot of Swiss Army knives anymore, but we do have something kind of equivalent today, don't we? The smartphone. (laughs) The smartphone has all the apps. It has calculators and calendars and games and movies and banking. You can do so many things on the modern-day smartphone. It's almost like the Swiss Army knife Back in the day, you can get yourself out of almost any jam just by having the smartphone. But we love that kind of power, don't we? When one device, one tool can get so many things done, Helen's saying, I don't want it. Helen, you're a smart person. Because there's probably more harm than good with some of these smartphones. But, But there's a lot of things you can do with a smartphone, right? Just like you can do a lot of things with the Swiss Army knife. Well, notice what it says about Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. We've talked about that. And is profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Wow. I mean, it sounds kind of like a Swiss army knife, doesn't it? A Swiss army knife for, for the spiritual Christian, for the person following Jesus Christ. All you need is scripture. And it's profitable for every part of your life. I found this little cartoon that I thought was kind of cute. I don't know if you could read that. Um, the, the scout, or the saying, "I'm a good scout." The good scout is always prepared. I have all I need right here. As long as I keep this in my pocket, I'm ready for every good work. And he has the little things coming out of it, teaching, correcting, training, and righteousness and rebuking. Well, that's a cute little cartoon, but it's it's honestly the truth. If we realized the practicality of God's word, not just the power, but what it's a, what it, what it accomplishes in our lives that nothing else can accomplish, I think we would carry it with us all the time. Now, comparing it to the smartphone, I know many of us carry our smartphones almost everywhere we go. In fact, the other day I left my smartphone at home and I had to turn around and get it. But you know, I was convicted by that because I don't know if I've done that with my Bible, honestly. Now, my Bible is usually with me because I'm a pastor, but, but generally speaking, if I go somewhere without my Bible, I don't have that same panic attack sometimes that I do if I leave my phone at home. And I was convicted by that, that such a small, meaningless tool like this compared to such a powerful, effective tool like the Word of God should be on the same level, but sadly it's often the opposite. Well, I'm going to break these down a little bit before we move on. Uh, the practicality of God's power. Number one, teaching. I think when he says teaching, he's referring to doctrine. We'll talk about that. Number two, reproof. Number three, correction. And number four, training in righteousness. I'm going to have to breeze through these. We don't have time to linger too long. But I want to talk about what these things are and why they're important to our lives. Let's start with teaching. Come on screen. up. Yeah, there it goes. Teaching. Or, or doctrine. Maybe you've heard that term before. Doctrine. Doctrine is important. Doctrine is what we know about God. Doctrine is what God puts in his life to help us understand himself. Now, did anyone have a fun teacher growing up? Any teacher that you remember because it was such a great teacher? Yeah. I've at least had two. I liked my Russian history teacher. I know that's a weird class to take, but I liked that class. And I liked chemistry, as weird as it is. Anyone else like chemistry? The reason that I liked chemistry, Kelly, is because I had a really engaging teacher. He was informative. He was entertaining. He let us blow things up, (laughs) which for a high school student is like the best thing ever. And I just remember doing really well in the class. In fact, I got 100% in his class. 100. I mean, that's the highest you could get because the teacher was so engaging and I learned and I I was able to gather the information. I think the best kind of teacher is both informative and a little bit entertaining because it makes you want to learn, right? What if the word of God did that? What if the word of God not only instructed, but also entertained us and also did things that captured our attention? Well, who is God? Who is he and how do we know him? You ever ask that question? Who is God? How, what is he like? Where is he? How can I, a person, a sinner here upon the earth, know him who's so lofty? It says in Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55, it says his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. There's such a gap between God and man that it's insurmountable apart from his divine help. So how do we know God? How can we possibly know God with our small minds, know someone so vast and so mighty? Thankfully, he helps us. Thankfully, he is our teacher. And he's given us this this thing called doctrine. Now, you may have heard of the word doctrine. You also may have heard of the word theology. The two often get put next to each other because they're almost, you know, um, the same kind of word. They're almost interchangeable, but they're not really. Theology is a system that man comes up with to help us understand the Bible. It's, It's man's version of a filter. We put this theology into God's word and it helps us make sense of it. Okay, so theology is a, can be a very good tool if it's used properly. Doctrine is different, though. Doctrine is what God says about himself. Doctrine is what actually comes out of his mouth and says, I am this. You are that. Know this. Do that. Follow this. That's doctrine. That's when you don't need theology. You just look at it, you listen, and you do it. So I would even say in a battle between the two, and if doctrine and theology ever come against each other, we should hold theology loosely and hold doctrine tightly. Because doctrine is exactly what God says about himself. So when God gives us doctrine from the word of God, that is him teaching us about himself. It's very, very, very important when we learn about God. Because that is for our benefit as Christians to follow and to listen to. Paul said this to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4 of Ephesians. He said, referring to doctrine knowing doctrine, having doctrine, remembering doctrine, putting doctrine into practice, it can help us no longer be little children who are tossed by the waves and carried about by every wind of teaching in the slight of men and craftiness with a view to a system of error. Did you know that's what doctrine does? It helps you not be scattered abroad by every common popular teaching of the day. And there's a lot of them. There are a lot of them. In fact, with the internet, there's probably more than there's ever been before. Ideas, theories, possibilities, good ideas, they're always out there in our world. You can find them any, any corner you go around. And so doctrine helps, helps us stay tethered. Helps us to know the right things about God so that we can manage our lives correctly. And the Word of God always warns us about false teachers. Always. Now, back in the day, there were false teachers, just like there are now. Are there more today? Maybe there are. Maybe there are more people. Maybe there's more false teachers. Maybe there's more access to false teaching out there. But false teaching was a problem all the way back in the Bible days. And the scriptures often warn us of these wolves in sheep's clothing. They come to you acting like your friend, but they have other ideas in mind. And their goals are all about their father's goals. Lies. They want to lie. They want to deceive. Because I said this to someone the other day, false religion is much better for the enemy than atheism. Lies are always better than blatant mistruth. Deception will always ruin someone's life if they listen to it. And so the master deceiver has learned how capable false religion can be. And he's all about it. So he's going to take the doctrine of God and he's going to twist it. He's going to turn it. He's going to separate it. He's going to lessen it. He's going to add on to it. He wants to make it different than what God says it is from his own word. Because he knows if there's an element of truth to it, we might listen to it, going, well, that sounds pretty close. It sounds good. It sounds custom to what I've been hearing about this Christianity. I won't do my own checking. I'll just take this at face value. That's a very dangerous way to live. In fact, there was a whole group of people in the book of Acts called the Bereans. You guys ever heard of that, those people? And the Bereans were these people that when the apostles came and started teaching them the word of God, these Bereans took their own copies of the scripture and they opened them up. And they fact-checked the apostles with them. They were called Bereans and they were complimented and applauded by the apostles for doing such a practice because it was such a healthy thing to do, to take their own scriptures and to learn the doctrine of God and be tethered to that doctrine. Because there's really only two options, spiritually speaking, in this world. You can either be a kite, blown around by the wind of the theories and the ideas and the popular notions today. And I told you there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of kites in this world. This is popular, I'll go this way. This is popular, I'll think that way. And they're just blowing about, no tether at all, completely untethered, wherever the wind takes them. So they think this today, tomorrow they'll think something completely different. Whatever sounds good, whatever sounds powerful, whatever sounds palatable to their ears, and then there are anchors, and they've already learned that they should be tethered to God's word. That no matter what's out there in the world, no matter what's popular, what's out, what's, what's common, we need the unchanging, ancient word of God that can change our lives, that can equip us for every good work, because nothing else in this world can do that. Nothing else is alive and active, nothing else can change our souls, nothing else has been stamped by the Almighty God Himself except for His Word. And the question for us today is, do we want to be kites or anchors? Do we want to be untethered and blowing about by every breeze, or do we want to be tethered to the Almighty God and what He says about Himself? And about this word. And I've learned the hard way. I wish I could teach you, don't go the way that I went. Because I was a kite for many, many years. Blown around, thinking this was good, thinking that was good. Being very passionate about this, and then another year goes by, and I'm passionate about something completely different. And now I want to be steady. I want to be stable. I want to be steadfast. I want to be anchored to the word of God. I don't want to blow around anymore, and I don't want you to as well. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, my favorite pastor and preacher of all time. He said, discernment is not a matter of telling the, the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. Right? Yes. Most of us can tell the difference between right and wrong. It's blatant black and white. But what about the neutral? What about the gray? What about the stuff that's slightly right but a little bit off? How do you discern between those where there is no other way? There are no shortcuts. It must be through the word of God alone. We've talked about teaching doctrine. We need to talk about reproof. Reproof is different than teaching. Um, Men, we struggle sometimes. Um, We struggle ever admitting that we're wrong. I found this little thing that I thought was kind of cute. It said, why did Moses wander in the desert for 40 years? Because even back then, a man wouldn't stop and ask for directions. Now, that's not true. I just talked about lies, and that's a lie. Uh, but the women are saying it's not a lie. They stand by it. Well, men especially, I can speak for the men because I am one, we don't like to admit we're wrong. We don't like to admit we're going the wrong way. We'd rather figure it out on our own than someone tell us, you're wrong, turn around, because it, it, it feels you know bad. It feels like it touches our ego, and we don't like that. But the Lord of God has to do that to every single person upon the earth has to without question Every single person starts going wrong. Thanks to the fall of Adam and Eve Every single one of us starts out as sinners, which means our aim is the wrong way We're headed the wrong direction and God has to reprove us or rebuke us or turn us around It says in Proverbs 123 turn at my rebuke Surely I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make my words known to you. And there I am, and as an age 26-year-old man going the wrong way, thinking I'm going to fine way, thinking I could make up my own directions for my own life, live by my own code of conduct, and then coming to God's word and realizing God was saying, Todd, the bridge is out that way. You keep going that direction, you're going to fall, and it's going to hurt, and you may fall permanently, Todd. Todd, turn around. Turn around, Todd. Let me reprove you today. Let me rebuke you today. Listen to my rebuke and turn around, Todd, because I love you. I don't want you to fall into a pit. I don't want you to be destroyed. I love you too much. So I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to tell you that is the wrong direction. Please follow my son, Jesus Christ. And thankfully, because of that rebuke, I am standing here today. Without that rebuke, I don't change. I continue on my path and I fall into the pit. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in verse chapter 12. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we proved by him. There's our word. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's hard to be disciplined, right? It's hard to be told you're wrong. But the Lord only does that to those whom he loves. He would never do that to anyone that he doesn't love. In fact, if you are disciplined, that's an evidence of God's love in your life. Because the very, when I do this to my children, it is the same exact evidence of my love. When I tell my child, don't touch that hot stove. Don't run across the street for that ball. They have to listen to me, otherwise they could be harmed. And that is my evidence of my love for my children. It's the very same with God, only on a much grander scale. When God chastises us and disciplines us, that is proof of his love for us. So, reproof. We've talked about teaching. We've talked about reproof. We now talk about correction. We make errors, don't we? We live in a world of imperfect people. This church is full of imperfect people. Myself at the front of that list. We make errors. And when you make errors and you realize that error, you now have a choice. You can correct that error. Or you can continue standing by that error. The wise thing to do is, once you understand that you've made an error, is to correct that error. I'm going to give you a list of cliches that are commonly talked about and promoted as if they're in the Bible, but they're not. And maybe you guys know this already, and I hope that you do, but I'm, I'm here to help, okay? I'm just going to give you a list of cliches that are not in the Bible, but are commonly thought of as they come from the Bible. Number one is God helps those who help themselves. I've never seen it. Never seen it in the pages of the Bible. It sounds really good it's like you help yourself and God will come along and give you the extra but it's not in the Bible here's another one God never gives us more than we can handle now I do need to amend that a little bit because in James it does talk about temptation being sometimes not more than we can handle because God would never break us with so much temptation that we can't overcome it with his grace but as a general rule if God never gave us more than we can handle guess what we don't need God we don't need God God We just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We live our own life. We accomplish our own goals. We get to heaven and we pat ourselves on our own back. It's never going to happen. God always gives us more than we can handle. How about this one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. I think every mom in the history of time has been their doctrine. It's a pretty good adage, but it's not in the Bible. How about this one? This too shall pass. We love saying that. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but... It means this season that is hard, that is here, will eventually go away. Not in the Bible, but not a bad adage either. All things in moderation. When God closes a door, he opens a window. That's a classic one. So just go through the window. Um, but not in the Bible. Here's another one. Everything happens for a reason. Now, there's some truth to some of these, aren't there? But here, here's what's tempting about hearing these kind of cliches. is We don't need to open this, do we? We just take the cliché. We just hear what someone says and go, wow, that sounds like it's from God. I'm going to live by it. It doesn't mean these things aren't, aren't good and don't have an element of truth to them. But we need to know what God says, don't we? We need to do the hard work and not take shortcuts. Because sometimes shortcuts can go badly. That is one of the most ironic things I've ever seen. It says on the truck, the road to success, there are no shortcuts. And it looks like he tried to take a shortcut. And that did not go well. And when we take shortcuts, at least in the Word of God, it never goes well. When these two minute devotionals that are out there, uh, I saw one the other day that said, a devotional while you brush your teeth. Yep. Yep. For all you theologians who want to go deep into God's Word while you're brushing your teeth, (laughs) take a little 20 second, 30 second devotional and you're good for the rest of the day. There are shortcuts all around us, and they're dangerous. Because by taking these shortcuts, we don't get tethered. We don't get to understand God's word, and we don't get access to his power. And when we don't have those things, we make a train wreck of our lives. And again, I can tell you a lot of stories of how I did that, by taking these shortcuts. Remember this old saying from the 80s? Who lived in the 80s? Right. Need a little muscle in the 80s. No pain, no gain. Which means if it's worth it, it's worth the pain that it takes to get there and you see that for a lot of athletes and people who, you know, bench a lot of weight and things like that. And there's an element of truth to that. No pain, no gain. At least with the word of God, you have to discipline yourselves. But we don't have to take the cliche again. Let's look what the word of God says about this. From 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul again writing to his protégé says, "Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales or we could even say clichés. Rather, notice it train yourself to be godly is working out easy no because we would all do it all the time if it was easy it's hard it's difficult to train yourself he says for physical training is of some value there's nothing wrong with physical training it has some value but godliness has value notice it for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come Do you see how far better godly training is than physical training? That if you don't have time for both, work out a little bit, okay? But godly training will bless you in this life and forevermore. Now, I don't really want to bring this up, but yesterday was the second year anniversary of my dad's passing. My dad went to be with the Lord, and my dad was ripped spiritually. I don't know how else to say it. My dad was a strong, seasoned warrior of godliness because he trained himself to be godly by knowing the word of God. And it was such a lesson to his son who was trying to be strong in so many other ways. And my dad was stable and steadfast and an anchor with godliness. And now that is a legacy that rings in my ears, my mom's ears, my sister's ears, my children's ears is the godliness of my dad, Papa Mel. Because he trained himself for godliness. And now it's blessing him on the other life as well. Forevermore. How about this one? Training in righteousness, our final one. Training in righteousness. Um, there's at least times, two times in life where you have to be trained, right? We're doing this for, for Thurman right now. Thurman is going through the potty training phase. and It's not going fantastic, I'm not going to lie. Um, it's going a little rough. He's a strong-willed kid. But, and then when you're around 16, you go through driver's training, and um, you have to get trained, right? Because for some reason, we don't know how to go potty on our own, and we don't know how to drive on our own. Someone has to sit down and teach us and show us how to do it, and we're thankful for those people, because without those people, we would, well, you know what would happen. You'd be in a real mess right now. Uh, But thankfully, someone comes along and teaches us and trains us what to do. Maybe there's another level of training, too, if my screen will come up here. And maybe some of you have experienced this kind of training. Nope, doesn't want to show it. Come on, there we go. Maybe some of you have, have experienced real hardcore training for the military. These guys really got to go through it, don't they? It's called boot camp, and they got to be through, put through intensive pressure, both spirit or both physical and mental, so that they can enter war someday and accomplish what they need to accomplish. Training is hard, but training pays off in the end. In Proverbs sixteen nine, it says, "A man's heart." Plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Aren't you thankful that your steps have been directed by the God who loves you and who created you and who knows the way to eternal life? Boy, I am. Because without those steps being directed, I would be nowhere good today. I have been trained by my God. In Acts chapter 8, there was a eunuch, and um, Philip, the disciple Philip, was teaching him the gospel. And he was explaining, he, was, he noticed the eunuch was reading something from Isaiah. And he said to him, do you understand what you're reading today? And the, and the eunuch said this, he says, no, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And that's when Philip joined him on the ride and showed him exactly about the Christ and about the prophecies of Jesus. And trained him in righteousness. We all have to have trainers train us. And thankfully that is my privilege but it's God's privilege most of all because he said in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. No one loves us more than the good shepherd because we are his sheep. When I see my children going in errors, in ways that are going to hurt them, I have to turn them around because I love them. I can't just go, ah boy, I hope it works out one day. I hope they recognize it on their own one day. As their loving father, I have to say, Child, stop. I've done that before. It didn't go great. Let me show you the right way to go because I love you. No one loves my children more than my wife and I. And therefore, we do what's necessary to train them. So the practicality of God's power, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, it's all there, everything we need. We have one last point to go through and we'll go through this quickly. It's the result of God's power. Now, some of you... I know have taken martial arts before, and some of you have worked out and are still working out. Here's my question for those who do: What what what's the point? I mean, what is the point of knowing martial arts, Dennis? What's that? Discipline. Discipline. It's not to beat somebody up. Self defense. Self defense. So it is to beat somebody up. Okay. Yeah, that's right. You're a karate master. So you have to control your emotions. Yes. Control. Balance discipline self-defense what about having muscles working out being strong of course they're not bad things. but what is the point what is the point of these things well you might ask, ask the same question about the scriptures why do we do this well it must be god wants us to know a lot he just wants us to know a lot and so we, we study the bible a lot we read the bible a lot we know a lot and then we get a gold star in heaven that has to be the reason no, I don't think so. I don't think that's why it's there. Because even if you ask someone who's into martial arts and someone who works out a lot, there would be a purpose for what they're doing. There would be a use for what they're doing, or there should be. Why do we study the Bible? Be prepared. Be prepared. Or today we're going to say the word equipped. Paul finishes the thought for Timothy and for us. He says that the man of God may be complete. Number one, complete. Number two, equipped, complete, and equipped. That's why we study the Word of God. We want to be complete and we want to be equipped. Now, the Eiffel Tower. Has anyone seen the Eiffel Tower up close? Anyone ever gone to see the Eiffel Tower? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm assuming it's a beautiful structure to see. It certainly is in pictures. But there was at some point that the Eiffel Tower had to be constructed. It had to be built. Now, if they got to this point right here and they stopped, I don't think a lot of people travel to Paris to see that. I'm guessing. I'm guessing that's not great for selfies, is to stand in front of an almost finished structure. But the full thing, absolutely. Well, the scripture likens us to a structure that's being completed. That right now we're in the building phase. We're in the erecting phase. And one day we will be a glorious tower by God's grace, by God's strength, that one day can echo into eternity. And therefore, the Word of God is an integral part of that process. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says it this way, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is the point of studying the Word of God? Do you notice it? What's the point? For good works. Now, this is the same passage. If you go back two verses, it says we're not saved by works, right? Isn't that what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace works are bad is that what he's saying no no no. because you come to the very next verse and he says ah don't forget works because you were created for them you're not saved by them certainly you're not justified by works are we we're justified by faith but we are saved to do good works and that's an important distinction to make because we're not just learning to know we're learning to do we're learning to follow 1 Corinthians 13, speaking about love, Paul said, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith to move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If we don't take the word of God and use the word of God, what's the point of the word of God? Paul would say there is no point unless it works out towards love. Or in my paraphrase, be like Jesus. Jesus. That is the point of the word of God, to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus said, to go where Jesus went, to follow his every footstep because Jesus is right. Jesus is right. Jesus is loving. Jesus comes from God. Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. So when we go the way that Jesus goes, we too are right. We too follow the path of life. And we too are equipped. Equipped for every good work. Equipped for every single thing that God expects of us now I told you we're going to end on a story today and we're simply going to read the story we don't have time to teach the story I'm going to pause a little bit along the way but I just want you to see a story of a man who was equipped for something really big it's the classic story of David and Goliath you could join me there in 1 Samuel but you don't have to because I put the scripture on the screen it's 1 Samuel 17 and I just want you to read this and I want you to notice a couple things along the way I want you to notice the courage of David and I want you to notice him being equipped by God to do the task First Samuel 17, in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So even though I'm not an artist, we have a valley with the Philistines, or we have a mountain with the Philistines, a valley And then another one with the Israelites, okay? So here's the Philistines on the left, Israelites on the right, and there's a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, that is a big guy, okay? Estimated height for David at this time was around 5'2", okay? He's a young man. He's probably a teenager at this point. You guys ever heard of Shaq? Who's heard of Shaq? The Hall of Fame basketball player was seven feet one inch. That's a large human being. Well, Goliath would have put Shaq to shame because he was nine feet six estimated height. That is a big man. Not only a man, but a soldier, a seasoned soldier. And Goliath comes out and it says he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. This is a big guy. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. This is a scary guy. Now, I was able to find an actual picture of this event, and uh, sadly, it was zoomed out too far, um, zoomed in too far. No, that's not a real picture. Of course, that makes him look like Godzilla or something. He wasn't quite that big. But Goliath was a big man. And not only that, but a seasoned warrior and, and full of armor, ready to battle anyone that came before him. It says in verse 8, He, Goliath, stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? He's mocking them. He's belittling them. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Wouldn't you be? I mean, that that is a big man taunting you. It's a very scary thing. And he's blaspheming God. This is what kind of turns this whole story on its end. He's not just taunting them. He's not just scary. He's blaspheming the God of Israel. That's an important thing for us to remember when David shows up on the scene because David's not going to stand for it. He's blaspheming the name of God against the ranks of Israel. Now in verse 12, David arrives on the scene. David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. That sounds familiar. I have eight kids. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years, referring to Saul the king. The three eldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Notice the connection there. That's an interesting connection, isn't it? Because he's a shepherd. That's what David was. He's a teenager, he's a shepherd. That's his job. So he's going back and forth from the battle to being a shepherd. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening, blaspheming, taunting the Israelites. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went to greet his brothers. So David arrives on the scene, and he's going to pay attention to what's taking place that day. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistine and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. These guys are warriors. These guys are Israelite warriors. These guys should not be afraid of anything. A, they're warriors. B, they're in God's army. Okay. But Goliath comes on the scene and they're terrified. They're running away from the scene. They can't handle it. Verse 32. David says to King Saul... Notice the courage. Let no man's heart fail him because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I'll go, Saul. No one have to worry. No one has to be scared here. I'm going to go fight him. David, me, 5'2", teenage David, I'm going to go take on Goliath. Let everyone, everyone should be calm now, right? I got this. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. <laughs> and Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Better you than me, David. And David's like, listen, this this isn't my first rodeo, okay? I've been a shepherd, and I protect sheep. And one day a lion came, yeah, I took him down. Another day a bear came, yeah, I took him down. No big deal. And the Philistine, he's just a glorified version of those guys. So I'll take him down too. If he's here to hurt those whom I love, whom God loves, I'll stand in the way, and God will be with me. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. Then he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Now, Saul thinks it's a good idea to be equipped, right? That's, that's a good thing. If you're going to fight a massive giant, you should probably have the armor and the weaponry that you need. The problem is, is David was not used to these, he had never tested them in battle. He said to, the, said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took them away. I can't use them. I can't be equipped with something that I don't know works in battle. But there is something that does work in battle, isn't there? There's something that is tested, isn't there? There's something that every single time it's tested works, isn't there? And David was going to use a parallel for that says in verse 40, He took the staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine with stones and a sling. Is that a good plan, David? I mean, the guy is a seasoned warrior, nine feet, six inches of muscle, of armor, of weaponry. He's angry, he's vicious, and you're going to bring a stone and a sling David, yes, because the last time I did this, God helped me beat a bear and a lion. The last time I tested these, they worked tremendously. I'm going to use them again. The same tools that God gave me before. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He's calling David a pretty boy. (laughs) Pretty boy. Really pretty boy. You think you're going to take down me, pretty boy? Not going to happen today, pretty boy. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Not a good idea. Then the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. A little bit of a bullying going on here, David, the pretty boy, being pulled backed up against the wall, and Goliath ready to pummel him. I mean, it looks like it's going to be a dominating victory on the one side. Of course, we know how the story ends. Then David said to the Philistine, in rebuttal, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I mean, those are big tools. Those are seasoned tools of warfare, David. But notice what he says. But I come to you, Goliath, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I don't come to you today with sticks, Goliath. I don't come today today with you with just stones and with five-foot-two stature. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. God will be my strength today. God will be. And these tools that are nothing in your eyes will be the very tools that take you down, much like the word of God. Is it flashy? No. No. Does the world desire it? No. It must not be that powerful then, is it? Well, let's learn again. Verse 46, he said, The day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Not bad for a pretty boy. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And we still believe that, don't we? Is there a God in Israel? Amen. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Does David look scared to you? Not to me. We don't fight Goliath, do we? But we do fight a Goliath, a monster, terrifying, strong, smart, But guess what we have in our midst? The same sword of the Spirit that has taken down every foe before it. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran away quickly? No, he ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Boy, isn't that a cool picture Goliath comes at him with all his height and muscle and, and experience, and he's taunting him, and he's blaspheming God. It's terrifying for every other soldier in the Israelite ranks. But David stands there, not even shaking one bit. In fact, he's running. He's advancing in the army, in the battle, because Goliath's going down. He knows it. So David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into the forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. He took five stones. How many did he use? One. One stone. Because that stone was sent with some power, wasn't it? That stone was sent with some accuracy, wasn't it? That stone was sent with God, wasn't it? I love this quote that says, it wasn't the stone that killed Goliath, it was the rock. Isn't that cool? The rock of Jesus took Goliath down that day. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David, of course, because he took his own sling. He had no sword. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his own sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, yeah, they fled. They're out of there. We want nothing to do with what David has. David's the real terrifying one that day, is. David is. Not Goliath. Why? Because David fights in the name and the strength of God. The almighty, powerful God. And again, I got a picture from that battle. I was able to be there. There it is. With a huge sword of Goliath chopping his head off in victory. What's the point? We have to close this lesson. What's the point? What's the point of that story? What's the point of our lesson from 2 Timothy? What is the point? God's word is the source of all power, guys. We don't have to look too far. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to Google, where do I get power for this life? It's right here. we got it on our bookshelves. If you need one, take it home. It's a tremendous sword. It has all the tools we need, and it will result in true godliness if we use it properly and regularly. Discipline yourself for godliness. Number two, the only way to defeat our enemy, our Goliath, is to be equipped by the power, tools, and result of God's word. Yeah, it's Sunday school. It's a Sunday school answer, but the reason it works is because God said it works. And if we believe that, God will not call the equipped, he will equip the called. You don't have to be equipped to go into the battle. You just need to have God with you. Because when you have God, you are equipped. He will give you everything you need. And my last question to you today is, are you equipped? Are you equipped because you have Jesus on your team? Are you equipped because you have the Word of God accessible to you? Are you equipped because you discipline yourself for godliness? Are you equipped because you will face enemies today and this week and the remainder of your life? How are you and I going to overcome them? And there's only one answer. And that's why Crossroads Church, as long as I'm here, will always be based upon the Word of God only. Because there is no other tool to advance against the enemy. I hope that's a blessing to you. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your might. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you've given us such powerful tools to use, Father. But help us not leave this place and nod and go, man, what a great lesson. And not use it, Father, and store our Bible back where it normally is, Father. Let us take the word of God. Let us learn the word of God. Let us discipline to know it and let us use the word of God in battle. Because every foe that has come against the Word of God has found themselves to be defeated. Father, we are victors and conquerors in Jesus. Remind us of that today. If there's someone in this room who doesn't know that victory, doesn't know that power, may today be the day they set eyes on Jesus and say, you alone are what I need to victor this life, victor over my enemy, and victor forevermore. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.